the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Setter, your host for today. As so many kids across the country and in our community are heading back to school this week um, or are already back in or getting ready to, we um, are going to spend today talking about how to help kids be set up for success for a good school year. And in the studio with me today, Carissa Lloyd and Kenny Haber are our guests. Um, Welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And so Carissa and Kenny are both former special ed teachers, and they are part of the Center for School Services here at Cincinnati Children's, uh, both working in the role of school liaisons. And so we've asked them to join us to kind of help us think through this beginning of the school year, um, all the way through the end of the school year and helping kids be successful. So I suspect there are probably some people raising their eyebrows, like why are there teachers at the hospital? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's a great place for us to start. Would you um, just share a little bit about your, um, this role that you play at the hospital and how you help kids through the year and while they're here? Absolutely. So, yeah, at the uh, hospital, we have our Center for School Services uh, and Educational Research. Um, There's a few different types of roles that we have here. Some are like our patients that are seen longer term and they get teaching while they're here at the hospital. But we have a lot of families that, um, you know, for various impacts with different chronic health or mental health issues that they have, um, we see some impact in schooling or a certain gap that forms. And we help families bridge that gap. Um, it really can look like a wide range of things. A lot of them just need, um, you know, help getting the right forms in place with their schools. So those kinds of things. Um, but a lot more, we just talk with the families or even with the school partners about just things to be aware of certain processes that schools have to go through. Um, a lot of conversations about, um, obligations the schools have under certain educational laws that they need to go through, but also what the parents' rights are when they're trying to navigate those. And a lot of it's just, you know, best practices for how to interact with the school team or share information with the school team to really try to promote as healthy of an experience as possible with the school team. Um, And I think in general, it's it's in line with the the hospital's effort to try to care for the complete child. We certainly know how how big of a part uh, of these children's lives that school is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just try to help bridge any of those gaps that come up when they have different health needs. Yeah, definitely. We try to kind of create a, some normalcy in their school year when they don't have a lot of normalcy going on outside of it with their medical needs. So um, having that partnership between the family, the school, and the medical team is huge. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for that work that you do. And I'm certain that um, for kiddos who are navigating um, medical experiences as well as kids who are typically healthy and are heading back to school as they do each year. You guys probably have some things top of mind, like this beginning of the school year time. I know it's a lot for families, 
Um, I know it's a lot for teachers as well. What's kind of on your mind right now? What are the things that you want to um, suggest that families make sure that they're thinking through? Yeah, so I feel like there's a lot of things that promotes a good school year, a good start to the school year, and it's going to be different for every kid because every need, every kid has a different need, and they're also individual. But being proactive and knowing exactly what's going on to start the school year and having anything that's going to promote healthy engagement and just making sure that the child's ready to go to school. And I know that my kids right now have like open house, see your classroom, meet the teacher opportunities, um, those types of things. Um, what is, I, I know they make me as a parent feel better, but what do those help the kids do? How do they set, do, do opportunities like that set them up for a good year? And is that something that families should be trying to get their kids to the school to take part in those things? There's definitely a, a lot kind of coming toward the parents, and I, I have the same feeling with my own children starting school where it feels like there's a lot of um, different events going on at the school or a lot of emails you're fielding. Um, even a lot of schools now we see are doing more different apps um, to try to manage different parts of the school day. So you have like a bus app, you have a food app, you have all these different things. Um, and I absolutely, as, as a parent, empathize with it's a lot, but it's also very important stuff to try to tie everything together. When, when I see the kids participating in like back to school events, meet the teacher nights, I think it's a lot, it's a piece um, of several different things that can help a child transition back into the school year, back into that setting, um, particularly for kids that are moving into a new school or a new classroom in the school, just getting familiar, getting comfortable with that environment. Because um, there's a lot of different things with the school you know, school teaches a lot while the kid's there, but certainly there's a lot of just conversation between parents and children of different situations that could come up, different situations mm -hmm. they have to navigate, um, and just trying to be proactive with the, the your child as you're going through those and talk about whether it's peer interaction things or stuff that could happen at the bus stop um, really throughout the entire day. I think those kinds of opportunities to be at the school um, and engage with the school team can be helpful to, to try to brainstorm what those conversations are. So let's talk about schedules for a minute, because I think particularly with older kids, summer is a time of zero schedules for certain families. Um, what can families do to get those kids back on schedule and really set them up for success? Yeah, I think um, it's very different for, for kids depending on their, their school situation. Um, whether they're going in person or certainly still, we have a lot of kids in our area that um, do school at home uh, mm -hmm. virtually. Um, a lot of charter schools, particularly in Ohio, that are online. So it's a very different answer. I think I would ask Carissa if you could talk some about the in-person and, and I'll talk about some of the tips for families that are learning at home virtually still. Yeah, so in-person learning, we're kind of going back to that before the pre-COVID mm -hmm. uh, way of schooling. So I think the main thing would be to create a schedule and have your child involved in the process of creating the schedule and just making them have that buy-in, that engagement with it, and then practicing the schedule. A couple days a week before school starts, getting them up at maybe the normal time that they would wake up for school, and then kind of showing them exactly what their day would look like once they have their school schedule, 
as a former uh, middle school teacher, you know, going from elementary to middle school was so different because they had seven individual teachers and each one you had to move to a different class. So they wanted to know exactly what was going to happen. Okay, now I go from here, then I have to go upstairs. So kind of walking through that and practicing with them is a lot less stressful when they're actually doing it themselves. Yeah, and, and for our families that are learning virtually or in, in some of the online schools, um, there's four main things that I talk with my families to really advise them to try to promote success in those situations. Um, one's very similar to what Chris was just saying. So having that consistent routine, mm-hmm. I think working with your child to make the routine and even having a, a visual display of it, whether it's written down or you make a poster of it, um, but that's that's done with the child and, and really thinking about their entire day as well for, for those routines. So, um, you know, still working in breaks, working in playtime, really working in how long they're going to work on each subject, which can especially be helpful um, of knowing when enough is enough that you don't need to just keep keep going. You don't need to stress out too much about mm-hmm. getting every little thing done for that. Um, but also just your regular kind of normal life routine. So like your your sleep schedule, what you're doing in the morning for just your regular hygiene and meals, all those different things, making that schedule and having a, a visual display of it. Um, the other is having a dedicated workspace. Um, and this is a really important one for kids. So definitely a, a, a place in, in the home that's dedicated to where they're going to be doing their schoolwork. When they're not there, they're not doing their schoolwork. So definitely avoiding doing work in their bed or any other place that they typically mm. would be relaxing or watching TV. We want to avoid those kinds of things. So a dedicated space that has all everything they need, uh, all the materials they need to complete their work day for that um, is important as well. Um, the third thing I share with families is um, it's more on like the tech side, but just knowing the platform that you're using, both the child and the parent, to try to mm-hmm. troubleshoot if other things come up for that. And then kind of related to this is really understanding like the procedures, um, like for grading, and especially the, the, the different ways that attendance is measured in schools. So there's several different online schools in Ohio, and from my experience, they all do attendance a little bit differently. So some of them are really like dedicated, these are set times, you have to be logged in, and you're on screen with a teacher. Other ones, it's based on your work completion, no matter what time of day it is. So it's much more flexible for some families. So get very familiar with that. And especially for families that are considering switching to a virtual placement, I think getting familiar with those and those different options at the different schools and making the right choice for what's best for your family. I I really like where you went with those last couple of things about just the family's understanding the expectations of the school, really getting to know those details. And I feel like communication with the school, um, whether it's an, um, it's an online school or a virtual school or in person, is really an important place to start. And I'm curious if I, I, most teachers kind of establish a line of communication are there instances where it's important for a family to also have a line of communication with anybody else in the school, um, kind of as that setting things up for success at the beginning of the year? Definitely. I would say being proactive and reaching out to your child's teacher with any needs or concerns. I mean, you know your child best, so they're going to spend 
the next amount of time with them, the next most amount of time. They're going to be with them a lot throughout the next nine months. So anything that you can share with the teacher, that would be setting them up for the most success because the teacher is going to be the first line of defense. And then if something needs to go more communication with other people in the building, like maybe you have a health condition and you need to communicate with the nurse, you know, that would be someone you also want to establish a relationship with as well. Um, I think oftentimes we jump straight and go straight to the principal when um, teachers are really the best defense and the, you know, the first line that of contact and creating a good relationship with them is going to definitely set your child up for success. And I think knowing kind of what the need is as well, um, part of it's nice because nowadays there's a lot of different ways that schools have that you can communicate with a teacher. Um, and it, it can be teacher to teacher as well. Some are more comfortable with texting. Some are better for email. Um, there, there's different applications that they use as well. Um, so it's not like on their personal cell phone device that they're mm-hmm. using for that. Um, but just as well being mindful of the teacher's actual day schedule. You know, there's some staff that are not accessible during the school day because they're teaching, they're working with kids or they're covering in the lunchroom, all these different things that are um, asked of teachers to do. Um, but just confirming that going into the school year, mm-hmm. hey, what is the best way for me to reach you during the day? Um, are there particular times during the day that work better for you? You know, their plan bells, because a lot of teacher schedules get filled up, you know, especially with meetings and, and things like that. Um, I, I did want to add, too, for particularly for parents of children on individualized education programs or IEPs, um, that document does say how the school communicate updates with how your child is progressing towards their IEP goals. So I would encourage you, if you're not already, to get familiar with what it says, um, the frequency of how those occur and what they're going to look like. Most of them, it kind of defaults to quarterly reports, midterm reports. Um, But if you need something different for your particular child's needs um, or you need more frequent reporting, definitely feel comfortable to bring that up with your, your child's teacher or their IEP team and at least to ask questions to understand what it is, but also if a change needs to be made, feel comfortable to make that request. You led directly into my next question, which was going to be about IEPs and 504 plans. And I would love to dig a little bit into what um, what those plans are and the children that those types of plans can help. Um, so maybe since we were already talking about IEPs, could we just have a little overview of what an IEP is and um, you know, if there are kids who maybe could benefit from having one and don't, where the process for something like that typically starts? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's always good for our families to know. It's always, we're, we're always updating our providers here at the hospital just as well to, to get more familiar with some of those processes. I think it's probably best to talk about the really the three different formal support plans. Um, I, I can jump into it, Chris, if you prefer. You can go. Okay. So generally speaking, um, and, and I'm going to say this applies much more to our, um, for children in public schools than private schools. So there's some caveats for that, but I'll kind of talk about how it works in the public school setting. There are generally three different types of support plans that a child could have. So there's IHPs, which are individual health plans, there are 504 accommodation plans, and there are those IEPs, individualized education programs. So um, they each meet a very different type of need for different kids. There may be some overlaps. It may not be 
really clear which one is the best fit. So it's always good to kind of have that conversation with your school's team, um, whether it's an IHP that a school nurse typically oversees or 504s and IEPs that are overall in the building overseen by a school psychologist for that. So I'll kind of start with the, the IHPs. So those are really, those are established with the school nurse. Um, they pertain much more to medical needs in the school that don't impact a child's um, access to the education. Um, also for children that don't have any um, need for specially designed instruction or what we commonly would just be called like special education services. So typically you can just set that up with the nurse. It's a usually a pretty brief, straightforward meeting with them. Um, and it just documents what the child's needs are, any need for access to the nurse, um, you know, medication access, those sorts of things in the school setting. Um, the, the one thing about IHPs are if there's any kind of issue with what's being provided at school or any sort of dispute, there aren't really any additional steps or what we call procedural safeguards um, to take to follow up on that. You would just contact your school building, your school nurse, raise the concern, and probably meet again to, to revise the plan would be the steps to take from there. That next plan in the middle is a 504 accommodation plan. Um, so these are accommodations a child needs to be able to access the school building or access the school curriculum is really the language in the law that it falls under, but it still is short of any need for that special instruction, special education, um, any of those sorts of academic modifications that a child could need for that. So 504 plans have to do more of getting into the building, being able to move around the building, any accommodations to stay safe or stay healthy in the building. So things like my child needs, um, you know. Unlimited use to the restroom. Yes, restroom access, water access, nurse access. Um, you know, those sorts of things that, that help them stay safe in the building, help them stay in the building without getting sick or without exacerbating any of their medical symptoms that they may have. Um, I'm kind of trimming it down a little bit. Um, and then that third planner, the IEPs. So that's, it could still include everything below it. So everything you would have on a 504 could be on an IEP just as well. You typically don't have two of these plans. Okay. Um, so if you have an IEP, you typically don't have a 504 as well. Um, so the IEP gets into the realm of what's called specially designed instruction. So that's special education. So they need additional help. Maybe it's work with a, an intervention specialist could also fall into areas of like um, PT, speech therapy, OT at the school. Mm -hmm. um, it can even go up to like toileting, yeah. Um, yeah. help with that kind of services as well. Yeah, so it, it's really, so the child, you know, the 504, it's just access to the curriculum. Mm -hmm. IEPs get more into um, like changing how it's taught as opposed to how it's taught to other children. Um, or even how they display their mastery of the, the content is the phrase that's kind of used in that. I do want to add, for all these plans, you have to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. So just because you have maybe dyslexia or um, ADHD or something like that, they still have to go through the evaluation process and make sure they meet the criteria to be eligible for services. So I think that's something that we always want to keep in mind as well. Yeah, because 504s and IEPs fall under different federal laws um, that kind of say that schools provide them. And then, um, particularly for IEPs, it falls to each state to make their own rules for the different processes for evaluating 
and carrying out those plans in particular. So our school partners are under, you know, legal um, restraints or legal codes, I should mm -hmm. say, um, that kind of dictate how they can go through those processes. So sometimes that's where we try to help families navigate what they need to know. And, and in addition, some of those procedural safeguards. So for 504s and IEPs, if there are concerns that they're not being followed, there are steps to take. There's a lot of information out. There's some good advocacy websites. Mm -hmm. um, there's also just good resources from um, at the government level for information on those procedural safeguards. And whenever you meet with a school to review those plans, they're, um, they're obligated to provide you a copy of those procedural safeguards for that. So if you have any issue with that, that lies out the steps to, to take to address them. And since we're so close to Kentucky, I'm a Kentucky girl, so I like to add this part too, that if you cross state lines and say you start out the year in Kentucky and then you move to Ohio, they have to reevaluate to make sure that you're still eligible for services under Ohio's law. So just uh, keep that in mind when moving that know that the process is going to have to start again and you'll be meeting with the new school team to go over that. Mm -hmm. And is my understanding that a 504 um, accommodation plan can help with accommodations such as seating in the classroom that helps the child or perhaps um, thinking about testing a little differently can can test in um, you know separated from the full class if there are distractions like those are the types of accommodations that um, the curriculum isn't changing mm -hmm. but there are some adjustments and parents can ask if they think that they're if their child qualifies if there yeah. are things interventions that they think could help um, it am I am I correct in that understanding yeah. so I would say potentially okay interesting um, and really if if that's an area you think your child has a need or you think there's an impact in the school setting um, I think working across um, trying to get um, updated information from your medical team that you can share with the school that mm -hmm. will help them um, in their evaluation or help determine what the need is. Um, I will stress that, that school's obligation really pertains to um, how the child's impacted in the school setting. So this is an area where um, we see some parents try to navigate um, the best way forward with it, but school's obligation on, under these federal laws is really for how they're impacted accessing the education or how they're impacted in the school setting. So sometimes there's some, some gray lines as to where that applies to schools as opposed to things that could be addressed in like an outpatient setting mm. for that. Um, but I think just a lot of communication is the best way to try to navigate that. If you think your child does have a need, um, bringing it to the attention of your school team. Um, it's always said to do that in writing, but I think having a conversation with them first with a follow-up email is, mm -hmm. is typically what I advise my families to do. So you're not just uh, showing up with a letter for that would be uh, good first steps to take for that. And as far as accommodations, it's going to vary for each individual student and their needs. So say you have a 504 for ADHD, and there may be another student that has a 504 for ADHD. You may not get the same accommodations just because it's based on what the child actually needs. So I think that is the most important thing to keep in mind is that it's just because you know someone with the same diagnosis doesn't mean that you're going to have the same accommodations that go along with it. Yeah, and I, I think taking the opportunity, kind of getting back to the, the back-to-school idea is if your child's already on uh, a plan like that, um, finding time early in the school year. Certainly we understand schools are very busy right now. There's a, a lot of meetings going on, um, a lot of new staff 
in the buildings as well, a lot of changing staff that schools are working through. Um, but it is the parents' right to request a, a meeting to review those plans. Um, and I think just talk about anything particular to this school year that may be different or needs, you know, whether it's new things they need, but also things that they don't need anymore. So if, if the family's in agreement, you can also take things off your accommodation plan. It's totally okay. Especially as the child gets older, maybe moves to a new school building. There may be needs that are, are present now that weren't before. Um, and, and just as well, just sharing those updates for it, talking about, you know, for example, we have some kids, you know, some schools take really unique field trips um, that are awesome learning opportunities, but they, they may need some attention to that, some, some extra planning or extra education for school staff to, for the child to be able to access that. So I'm gonna shift us a little bit here. And I'd like to talk about goals and academic achievement for a few minutes, um, because we know that there are kids who just really have high expectations of themselves and would love to talk for just a few minutes about what parents can do to help kids um, head into a new school year with healthy, achievable academic goals. Absolutely. So I think probably the main thing is you want to be realistic. Having Setting goals that are realistic and achievable are going to be huge for your child. But also at the same time, we want to make sure that to let them know that it's okay to fail. And I think that's a big thing that when kids get to college, if they haven't failed from kindergarten to senior year and they take that first exam and they get an F on it, their world comes crashing down. So I think we have to express and share and maybe even share some of your own failures with them to know that it's okay and you build resiliency and know that you can overcome even though this may be a setback, something good came out of it. Yeah, I think a, a good school year is going to, again, kind of address the needs of, you know, the child is a complete person, not just those math goals and reading goals and you know, testing scores, um, but really preparing them for, you know, um, future learning independent living and, and eventually their, their place in society, you know, employment, enlistment, wh whatever it may be um, that fits your child in the future. I, I think it's good to address some of those other kind of life skills that you need. So like Chris is talking about that resiliency, learning, learning to fail, learning to lose, uh, especially younger kids, you know, learning to wait your turn in line um, as opposed to what your math and reading scores are. Um, those kinds of things that are helpful or even, you know, we, we chat about learning, learning how to be bored um, is a great skill for kids to have because you may need it. You know, not being um, plugged in, entertained all the time, mm -hmm. kind of things that are helpful for that. So I think just balancing um, short-term goals with long-term goals and, and keeping things open and really not um, trying to avoid putting any undue pressure or stress or a need, especially a need to do everything and really mm -hmm. cram their schedules full, uh, I think can be, at least from my perspective, just as a parent and as a teacher, things that, that can be helpful for kids, you know, given that kind of open time, that unstructured time to learn some of those other skills that are just as important. 
and having like personal goals too, like a personal goal of mine that may seem silly, but it's not academic related or work related is learning how to do a cartwheel. Never been able to do one, but I think having that for a kid is a huge goal to have too. That's like, okay, I'm, I'm also a person outside of reading. I'm also a person outside of school. So I think having goals that maybe gets them a little bit more invested is also really helpful. So thinking about life skills, my next couple of questions are related to studying. And I have an eighth grader and studying has definitely become more a part of our at home in the evening homework time than I think she was ready for. So I would love to know your thoughts on like how can kids establish good studying skills? What should they be thinking about? How does that kind of change over time and with the age of the child? Yeah, if, if, if we knew the best answer for this, we'd be, we'd be <laughs> in a good spot advising our families. I, I do think there's, there's just so many different approaches to it and a lot of you know, trial and error and finding what fits for your individual child, especially if you have a, a family with multiple children. You know, it may be very different from child to child. Um, you know, some, some general advice I've, I've given to families I work with here. You know, first, of course, you want to address their basic needs. You know, when they come home, do they need, you know, obviously things like rest or food or more activity maybe. You know, if a kid's sitting in class all day and not getting their energy out, um, things individual kids may need for that. Maybe some time to decompress and just chat about their day. Um, or, or address if there's any, you know, maybe they have homework to do, but they're thinking about something that happened on the bus or some interaction they had with staff or a kid that they need to, you know, work with a parent and get past that before they can really focus on their, their academics. So addressing their basic needs um, is definitely important for that, having, having time and having a space for that. Um, I think, again, kind of like we talked about before, definitely involving the child in planning out their their homework habits, their their dedicated workspace again, or what time they're gonna do it. Some kids are gonna do better right after school and some will need to wait or do after dinner. Um, and, and it may change or it may be a seasonal kind of thing. It may be different when, you know, here where we are in Ohio where the, the sun sets very different times throughout the year. So that may impact when they're doing their homework just as well. So they're still getting outside and getting the sunlight in before dinner may may be a factor for that um but i think involving involving the child individualizing it um don't be afraid of using a motivation system for it um if you have to get creative with some of those things and it it doesn't have to be something that costs money you know maybe just they they get to pick the music we listen to while we're making dinner or they get to help pick or make dinner you know those kinds of things that don't you know don't add any extra cost to the family but you know kids can really engage with those things um but also don't, don't be afraid to ask for help just as well. If it's an area of struggle, talk to your school team. Um, if, if it's concerns you think are appropriate to talk with your primary care provider, don't be afraid to ask for that help and definitely engage those professionals who have helped other families through it before. I also think like learn figuring out your learning style 
is going to be really helpful for you to study. For me, I like to listen to things and then I also like to read it. But I know that some kids, as soon as they read it, it goes, you know, right out the brain. So I think figuring out what's going to work best for you. And like Kenny said, trial and error, you know, you try something for a couple of times a week or or so, and then if it doesn't work, you move on, you try something else. So don't stick with something that's going to be super frustrating for you or your child. Mm -hmm. Of studying, I'd love to talk just a few minutes about state testing and knowing that each of you have experienced teaching in two different states. Um, the state testing doesn't look the same across the country, um, but I suspect that the way that kids prepare for it is often similar. So we just love your thoughts on state testing and you know what families can do to ensure that kids aren't getting so, so worried. I've heard such, you know, so many stories of kids who just make themselves sick worrying about this and just your perspective on it in general would be really helpful. So I can give a little bit of a general overview and then Kenny can talk a little bit more so about Ohio uh, state test. So I would say go in with a positive mindset. Uh, State test or district assessments are only uh, a few times a year for the district assessments and then state testing usually at the end of the year. Um, Having a positive mindset and being prepared, you know, getting a good night's sleep, um, eating breakfast in the morning and knowing that it's one moment in time. This doesn't define you. This doesn't mean exactly who you're going to be for the rest of your life. This is one test. So I think keeping that in perspective and just knowing that, like I said before, you are a person outside of school. So yeah, you may not have done great on the math test, but you know you still may do really great at reading, or maybe you're really good at a sport or love to uh, read you know, 50 books a year. So th- you're somebody outside of that. So I think keeping the perspective is good and kind of keeps things in check for your kid too. Yeah, I would agree. Kind of day-to-day advice, you know, for particular testing weeks. I think some of the more the the hygiene kind of things, good sleep routines, good nutrition um, on those particular days. Um, If if your child struggles with um, anxiety around testing, I think, again, engaging with professionals to find ways to cope with those different, you know, mindfulness, breathing, those sorts of things that those professionals can help help you pick up and learn those different ways. Um, I know at least in Ohio, one thing I stress with families is there are, um, the term that's used is high stakes testing, which kind of in short just means that there's there's something that'll happen if they don't do well. A lot of the state testing, it's, it's just for the information for how the school's doing, how the child's progressing, but there's no actual like I guess consequence to it mm-hmm. if the child doesn't do well. The the two main exam the two tests that we have in Ohio where that's not the case where we have high stakes testing, one is the third grade reading guarantee um, for where in general if a child doesn't pass that then they're at risk for getting retained. Um, there's some asterisks to that since COVID times. Uh, some of those laws have have been loosened in Ohio so um, and the other one are the um, end of course exams when a child's in high school. So those are their actual like used to be referred to like OGTs, Ohio graduation tests, and they, they have a different name now. Um, but even those, if you don't 
do well on those. There are other pathways in Ohio to still do what you need to to graduate. So again, get get familiar with those those different options for that. If you think your child's at risk for either academically not doing well or just their testing anxiety is impacting them to where that's the case. So good communication with your school team if you think your child's at risk for that. One of the nice things for for the OGT is they that law covers kids starting in kindergarten. They start doing those assessments to kind of see where the child is, see if they need additional help, and there there are steps for schools to take if the child's not where they're supposed to be. So I think getting familiar with those, there's a lot of good information on Ohio Department of Education website. If your state has um, similar testing, I think checking your state Department of Education website for those resources on that just to get familiar with it and start talking to your school staff early about it, where your child is for that. Um, I think it's pretty much it for that. Yeah. So our the final question that I have prepared for you is what are some indicators that families could be looking for that might indicate that a child is struggling during the year that would need to um, kind of, have the family go a step further, start looking into how they can communicate more and help that child. So just some of those indicators that they might see um, if the child isn't one that just comes in and says, mom, I'm really having a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I definitely appreciated the question. It's one that we definitely run into with families that we work with here at the hospital. Um, I will say there's upfront, there's a lot of good resources through both our, our blog here at Children's has good articles on it, but also the CDC, the Center for Disease, Centers for Disease Control, um, has good information for things to watch for and steps that you can potentially take to help with your child. So some of the things that, that I saw from those are things I have worked with families on before um, could include like some sleep issues that weren't there before, some changes in their behavior, if they're more irritable they used, than they used to be, um, if they're not engaging in certain activities that they were before or seem more withdrawn, um, potentially even up to some physical symptoms, um, headaches or stomach pains in particular mm-hmm. um, that they start complaining of, especially if you see them during um, like school times of the year. Like if, they, if they're not having these issues during winter break or summer break, but then during the school year they are, um, that, that could be a... a something to watch for for that um so. i would also say like disengagement so think losing interest in things that they really used to enjoy maybe they loved reading and now you know let's go to the library and it's like a fight mm-hmm. it's finding warning signs for you that your kids maybe you know something's changed about them and it's not exactly um just they're not telling you what's going on so i think making sure you take an effort to just check in with them. And I know um, school counselors are doing a lot with mental health now and being proactive and putting mindfulness into the daily classroom and different techniques like that. But I I would definitely say reaching out to your school and being uh, just question, you know, did you notice that, you know, Johnny's not doing this anymore? What's he like on the daily basis? And just kind of getting some baseline data to be able to be like, okay, I think we need to make some changes or let's go pursue something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, talking to your school and also your, your primary care provider, um, mm-hmm. just letting them know of those changes and, and getting their advice for it. Um, even on the – and some of these steps 
that I, I advise families on kind of go back to things we've said already, but going back to their routines, their dedicated workspace, um, their, their, their basic needs. So the, the sleep routines, the nutritional needs, um, addressing what you can, uh, more on the front lines for that. But also again, don't hesitate to call in help, talk to your school team, um, you know, more and more we see schools that um, provide school-based therapy um, as a resource for families. So that could be an accessible means where, where they can work with the child in the school. Um, in general, they're very easy to access. Um, most of the schools, and, and there's some, some variability, but um, usually a staff member will put in for a referral. There's usually a one-page form that needs to be filled out, and then there's an intake interview, uh, which a lot of times can be done just over the phone. So, mm-hmm. um, generally speaking, the schools we the schools that we partner with, it's a pretty pretty easy process to get connected with it um, after the parent makes that request. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation, and I'm feeling better prepared going into the school year. So, I thank you both for this time. Was there anything on that either of you had that? we haven't talked through that you'd like to add or any final words of wisdom from, um, from teacher to parent for this, uh, this crazy hectic back to school time. Chris, you want to go first? I was going to say when in doubt, reach out to your teacher. They are awesome people as former teachers. I would like to say we were pretty awesome too in the classroom, but, um, they have, they're a great resource they have. And I would just, extend a message of gratitude to to all of our families working to navigate these things you know whether your child does have you know it does have that context of a a medical need or a mental health need um, but also to our school partners Um, we work with so many caring compassionate professionals um, really throughout our whole region and even beyond that Um, we really appreciate all the collaboration everything you do to help support our patients and help just, again, try to get, get our families through towards, towards that independent living, future learning, and, and wherever they end up beyond that. So thanks to them. Well, thank you to both of you. We appreciate your time today, and you've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode was recorded on August 16th, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco, and this episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.